Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. We are continuing a series on undesigned coincidences in the Gospels today. Um, over the last several weeks, I've been talking about dependence and independence in relation to undesigned coincidences. These are these fittings together of pieces of information that come from different sources. Often, uh, sort of a classic undesigned coincidence, one piece of information explains another piece of information, but they appear not to be stated for that purpose. That is to say, it, it appears that the one person is not saying what he's saying in order to explain what the other person has said. Even when both are truthful, one person may deliberately say uh, something to explain. So if you get several people all talking to you at once about a certain incident and uh, person B feels that person A has left something out, he may chime in. He may say, oh, in case you don't understand, this is what happened. And they could both be telling the truth. But that would not be an undesigned coincidence because the second person appears to be saying it deliberately in order to explain what the other person said. But in an undesigned coincidence, the appearance is that that's not the motive. That's not what's going on. Inevitably, when you start talking about undesigned coincidences between the Gospels, those who oppose them will say, these people were aware of what each other were saying. They were not witness separated, therefore game over. They were not independent. There can't be any undesigned coincidences between them. And I've been answering that week by week. And last week, I did an undesigned coincidence between John and the Synaptic Gospels, specifically Mark. Um, and the passage was also found in Matthew, but I just used Mark. Um, to show how something in John, in a completely different context, explains something in Mark. But it is so far from being the case that John seems to be trying to do that, that actually it occurred in a passage in John that is taken to be in contradiction with Mark. But this one remark fits together very beautifully. And you can go back and watch that video if you want more details on that. Today, I'm, I'm using an example between two of the Synaptic Gospels. The Synaptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so-called because they often have similar material. And uh, there appears to be some type of literary relationship between them. Again and again, when people dismiss undesigned coincidences, they'll say, ah, you know, synoptic problem, again, game over. And I've seen it so often said, um, advocates of undesigned coincidences, or even specifically Lydia McGrew, does not understand the synoptic problem. Now, again and again and again, I've addressed the synaptic problem, even in my first book on undesigned coincidences, Hidden in Plain View, I talked about the synaptic problem in Mark and Priority. I talked about it even more in The Mirror or the Mask. I talked about it even more in my most recent book, Testimonies to the Truth. Um, and so after a while, you, you start to realize that people who say that either don't know 
or more often what they mean by understand the synaptic problem is that you have to agree with them. So, uh, you know, we don't understand the synaptic problem means that we don't agree with their approach. So a very common scholarly approach is that anywhere where the wording resemble, resembles each other between, say, Mark and Matthew, it's assumed automatically Matthew is just copying this from Mark and any departures from Mark, any wording departures, any additional information um, is just added out of Matthew's imagination. So that if there's anything in Matthew that's not found in Mark, Matthew has to be making it up. Now that last part about Matthew making it up doesn't follow at all from verbal resemblances between Mark and Matthew. In fact, if there's additional information in Matthew, that's some evidence that Matthew has an additional source of information. It certainly is not automatically something that follows from dependence on Mark, because if Matthew were completely dependent on Mark in that passage, he wouldn't have any differences, right? He just copied Mark. That'd be it. So there's this kind of two-step that happens. See, look at these verbal similarities. Oh, now look at these verbal dissimilarities. See, that, that means Matthew's changing the facts, right? That Matthew has no reason to think that um, whatever information he's adding is true. He's just adding it out of his head. Well, what's the evidence for that? Nothing. But what will be said to be the evidence for that is something about market and priority and the synoptic problem, as if there were some scholarly discovery that Matthew made stuff up, or that whenever Matthew's wording was a little bit different from Mark's wording, he was making stuff up. There is no such scholarly discovery. That is an unsupported scholarly assumption and certainly doesn't follow from verbal resemblances. In other words, if you had two witnesses to a car accident and there were some verbal resemblances between the way they spoke, you might think that they'd somewhat influence one another, but if there were also verbal differences, um, that wouldn't arise from their influencing one another because those are differences, right? Um, and if somebody added a bit of information, maybe he also saw the car accident, maybe he also knew something more. So today I'm going to talk about an undesigned coincidence between Matthew and Luke. And that's something I want you to keep fixed in your mind because the verbal similarities in this passage about the beheading of John the Baptist are between Matthew and Mark. But the claimed undesigned coincidence is between Matthew and Luke. And there are not verbal similarities like this between Matthew and Luke. In fact, the undesigned coincidence occurs with a passage that's completely different, a completely different context in Luke. So I want to start off, you know, sometimes I, I think that it doesn't matter how many times I show myself aware of the synoptic issue and the synoptic, so-called synoptic problem, I prefer to call it the synoptic puzzle, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, people are going to keep saying, Lydia doesn't not understand the synoptic problem, but we're going to have another try at it today. So I'm going to start with some verses from Mark about the beheading of John the Baptist, how Herod Antipas, 
Herod the Tetrarch, he's sometimes called, uh, killed John the Baptist. And I'm going to read the whole passage. Um, and then I'm going to read the similar verses in Matthew, again, to show I'm well aware that there are verbal similarities here. All right. This is Mark 6, beginning at verse 14. Uh, it's talking about Jesus' ministry, specifically the ministry of his apostles. And King Herod heard of it, for his name, that is Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And then it's going to continue to tell the story of how that wife managed to get John the Baptist beheaded. All right. Now I'm going to go read a similar passage in Matthew 14. All right. And at that time, this is beginning right at the beginning of Matthew 14, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So you can definitely see um, verbal resemblance there for sure. Okay, so I'm not unaware of that verbal resemblance. But does it follow that any verbal dissimilarities must be due to Matthew's invention? Of course, it doesn't follow. There appears to be some kind of literary um, dependence here. I'm entirely willing to grant that Mark might have been written first and Matthew might have had access to Mark. Uh, if that's all you mean by Mark and priority, sure, fine. Um, I think Matthew and priority has more to be said for it than people sometimes think, but it, it doesn't really matter very much as long as all you're talking about is the idea that one was written before the other and that there might be some literary dependence between them. So there's very similar wording there. Um, notice that Mark says both that the the people or you know the the general populace thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist risen and that Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist risen. Matthew just emphasizes that Herod thought that, and they even use the same wording. That is why such powers are uh, shown in him, but. You know, since since Mark says that Herod thought that too, it doesn't really matter the, whose exact wording is being attributed to whom. Um, but there is a bit of information in Matthew's account right there in those verses I just read that's not in Mark. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but that is that Herod was saying this to his servants specifically. Okay, then that's not in Mark. Now, you can ask a sort of question here. It's not like this was necessarily top secret, but how did Herod, um, if Herod was saying this to his servants, how did the author of Matthew know what Herod was saying to his servants? Okay, this isn't some sort of public proclamation. 
it's not top secret, but it's also not saying that, you know, Herod went out and said to the people, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. It's that he said it to his servants, presumably um, in sort of semi-private. It's not hush-hush, but, you know, when he's just talking to his servants. Um, now, skeptics will often say, and mainstream biblical scholars, that the gospel authors make up things they couldn't have known. And there are a number of these examples, like, for example, the plot in John to try to murder Lazarus. It's said to be going on in the Sanhedrin. And it's like, ah, oh, they couldn't have known what was going on in the Sanhedrin. They must have, you know, John must have made that up. Or uh, Pontius Pilate's conversation with Jesus. They'll, they'll just say, um, this happens in private. There are the only two people there, just Pilate and Jesus. And then you go read the text. It doesn't actually say that only Pilate and Jesus were there. It just says that the religious leaders remained outside to avoid ceremonial uncleanness by entering uh, Pilate's judgment hall. Okay, so um, that's very common. And it would be therefore very common to jump on this, and I've in fact seen this done, and say, oh, this is an example of one of those private things that the gospel authors just make it up. And it's kind of a faulty analogy to what we might call an omniscient narrator. In modern fiction, an omniscient narrator is going to tell you what everybody's thinking, you know, and he thought this and she thought that, and, you know, like as if the narrator is inside everybody's head, which in the normal course of events, you wouldn't be. But that's a poor analogy because, in fact, if somebody's saying something, then other people can hear what that person is saying. So it's not at all beyond the realm of possibility that Matthew could know what Herod was saying to his servants, and specifically that he said it to his servants, but we don't know how, right? We don't know, you know, it's not like Matthew says where he got that from. Um, and in fact, I've seen one and the same person who's trying to dismiss this undesigned coincidence I'm going to give say literally these two things. Um, ah, this is another one of those private conversations that the gospel authors record, even though they couldn't have known it. And everybody knew what Herod was saying to his servants. Everybody was interested in what Herod was doing. So I'm sure the whole, basically, you know, everybody, the whole uh, town knew what Herod was saying to his servants, uh, you know, pick one, right? Is this a private conversation that nobody would have known and so therefore Matthew must be making it up or is it something that everybody would have known? Um, so if you're going to dismiss this, you got to decide which way you want to dismiss it. In fact, it's the kind of thing that someone could have known, but we don't know how and we don't know that from Matthew. But now, if you go over to Luke, now this is not about Herod or about the beheading of John. It's not about John the Baptist. This passage is just at the beginning of Luke 8. He's talking about the financing of Jesus' ministry. And it came about afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So that's Luke 8, 1 through 3. 
Now, Luke does mention the beheading of John the Baptist very briefly in Luke 9. In fact, I was refreshing my memory this morning that Luke doesn't give the whole story about um, the daughter of Herodias dancing. He just mentions briefly that Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded. Um, but this isn't that context. This is just talking about Jesus Galilean ministry and listing some women who contributed. And you notice in that list, Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward. So this would be a, a servant in Herod's household, but, you know, kind of like a, a higher level, we might say major domo or something like that, um, who would be in charge of various things in Herod's household. Now, in, in that culture, you would not be likely to find a woman contributing to Jesus' ministry and even being present for Jesus' ministry if her husband was opposed to that. Husa very likely knew this, and I would say plausibly was sympathetic to Jesus' ministry as well. And there's Joanna. In fact, um, Luke mentions Joanna later as one of the women who went to the the tomb. Luke's the only one who mentions Joanna at all, um, or Susanna either. So what we have then is a situation where one of Jesus' female disciples is the wife of a fairly high-ranking servant in Herod's household. Now that provides a really good explanation. So we could say, well, the servants may have told people, but that's kind of vague. This is specific, and it relates to the, the people sort of who ran Herod's household. Very plausibly, Husa knew what Herod had said to his servants, passed it on either directly to uh, the disciples, if he was directly in contact with them, or to his wife Joanna, who passed it on to uh, Jesus and his disciples as she's with them. And so the author of Matthew, especially if he is one of Jesus' disciples, gets to hear of this. At least the Christian community gets to hear of it. And you just have that little variant phrase to his servants in Matthew's account of Herod the Tetrarchs hearing about Jesus. Now, that is an undesigned coincidence because use let's use common sense here. Suppose Luke was written later than Matthew. Still, think how implausible it is, or would be, for Luke to say, hmm, you know, Matthew mentions that Herod was saying this to his servants. I know what I'll do. I'll make up a woman who's related to someone in Herod's household, and I'll just put her name and her relationship to someone in Herod's household, uh, and the name of the guy in Herod's household, I'll, I'll just put that into a completely different passage where I'm talking about some of the women who financed Jesus' ministry. And won't that be cool? Because someone might notice it and think of it as providing some illumination to Matthew's passage about uh, Herod saying this to his servants. You, you have to have a really confused mind about what counts as a good explanation to think that that's a good explanation. Very easily could be overlooked. I had known the Bible for, you know, decades before anyone ever mentioned that to me. <clears throat> um, and in fact, even when I first heard it, it took me a while to kind of take it in 
and say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Um, a, a lot of these undesigned coincidences are like that. They're very easily overlooked. Um, we don't have any evidence that anyone noticed this one for, you know, hundreds of years, literally centuries. Um, maybe someone did, but we don't have any evidence of it until much later. So if you're going to make stuff up to make your document look cool, um, why not make something up that people are going to put together and notice? Otherwise, it's just this private little game that Luke is playing. Hey, I want to connect that together in my universe. And that's, it's a very anachronistic concept. Um, and a lot of times when people respond to undesigned coincidences, they respond as if we already know that these gospels are made up. We already know that there's some kind of elaborate fiction. And then with that, you know, enormously high prior probability that they're fiction, then we say, oh, well, so, you know, sometimes in fiction, people put a little Easter egg in there that maybe nobody will notice and maybe somebody will notice and so forth. Um, we certainly don't have evidence of that in ancient fiction. But aside from that, the whole question at issue is whether Luke is writing truth or fiction, whether what Luke is writing is literally true or not. So it's question begging to assume that he's writing fiction and then to say, and if he's writing fiction, he could just do this because he thought it was kind of a cool connection, uh, regardless of whether anybody figured it out or not. Um, when you even consider the possibility that he's not writing fiction, when you don't beg that question, then you can see that this is like some of the situations I've been talking about in secular uh, literature or like some of the hypothetical examples I've made up where one person says the robber's shoe was untied and another person says he tripped, okay? Matthew says that Herod was speculating in this way to his servants and only Luke says that one of Herod's high-ranking servants was married to a female disciple of Jesus. And these two things fit really well together. And you can then recognize the force of this when you don't just come to it with these blinkers on, assuming that this is all fiction. Now notice, everything I've been saying here in this talk concerns internal evidence of independence. The kind of independence being that one person isn't saying it in order to explain what the other person is saying, okay? That these, these two people have independent lines going back to, you know, the facts, okay? Um, they're not even in the same passage. The connection might easily be overlooked. This is casual. This doesn't look like Luke is trying to explain Matthew, okay? That's why the concept of internal evidence of independence is important so that you don't just hear somebody say, oh, well, synaptic problem, something, something, synaptic problem, checkmate, apologists, there are no undesigned coincidences, and these people don't understand the synaptic problem. Actually, we do. We just disagree with the mainstream idea that anything that's similar and a little bit different must contain fictionalized details. So that's my take on a undesigned coincidence between two synoptic gospels with a real push to show why 
the synaptic problem doesn't just explain it away. Now, next week, I'm going to do something even harder because I'm going to be talking about maybe not one of the strongest undesigned coincidences, but one that I think is interesting and does have some force in passages where it is similar in wording otherwise, but there is a slight variation, and I'm going to allege a coincidence between two of the passages that are similar in some ways in wording, which is not what I was doing here. So I hope you'll come back next time. That one has to do with the parable of the vineyard. Keep watching the Lydia Migru channel. We're making common sense rigorous.